Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello and welcome to the 2020 election podcast series. I'm Chase Cannon and I'm joined by my colleague Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal team and we're on the podcast to discuss some of the legal issues relating to the 2020 elections. Today's topic relates to the Supreme Court. Over the weekend, the news broke, Suzanne, of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, which is very sad news. And so regardless of your political leanings and positions, uh, just a moment to reflect on Justice Ginsburg. She was an amazing person, woman, leader, and judge. Indeed. Fearlessness and courage is to be admired. And I've been watching the documentaries and just re-watching some of that to remember all of that. And uh, we're saddened by that news and hope we have more time over the next few weeks to reflect more on her life. Moving forward, though, this year's election, at least from a constitutional scholar's perspective, just got a little bit more interesting. Uh, With Justice Ginsburg's passing, there is a real possibility that certain decisions out of the court uh, will result in a 4-4 tie. So what are your thoughts on that, Suzanne, to get us started here? Yeah, this is true. While we hope, obviously, that justices are nonpartisan, they're often seen as having an ideological leaning towards one side or the other. And of the eight justices that remain, five have been appointed by a Republican president. But if we try to predict what a court will do without Ginsburg, you really have to assess what Chief Justice Roberts is likely to do because he's been viewed um, by the G- by the GOP as the appointee most likely to join with the liberals since uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy retired in 2018. So when you couple the potential for a tie on the Supreme Court in certain decisions with the very real possibility that the outcome of this election will be litigated, you can see how this is significant. So we're not going to go through the nomination process for Ginsburg's replacement today because that's such a political hot button issue. We want to stay away from it. We want to stay neutral on this discussion and just talk about the election process, the legal issues surrounding an equally divided court. Um, because we really don't have to look very far in hindsight with Bush v. Gore to find an election for which the outcome was really impacted by a Supreme Court decision. Okay, so we'll dig into that lawsuit in a minute. But with again, without getting into the politics, it's clear that the president is going to present a Supreme Court nomination very soon, maybe by the end of this week. Do you think the Republicans have time to vote on that nominee before the elections? And can you walk us through the process of what needs to occur and who who the major players are or will be in that process? Yeah, so uh, we've been inundated by this discussion over the weekend. And again, this is what we know from a factual standpoint. The president is charged with nominating the Supreme Court nominee, and the Senate is charged with confirming that nomination. But, But this is when we break down the process, what it actually looks like. The president will nominate a candidate and send that nomination over to the Senate Judiciary Committee for consideration. That committee holds a hearing on the nominee, and during that hearing, You will see, we won't see, but there will be witnesses both supporting and opposing the nomination, um, and they'll present their views. And the senators will question the nominee on his or her, more likely her qualifications, um, her prior decisions, her views, and then they will vote on the nomination and send their recommendation to the full Senate. Mm -hmm. Once it reaches the full Senate, there are two steps. Again, there's a debate, which in this case we know will be heated, 
um, and then it will move to a vote. So in the past, there was a process or a practice known as filibustering, which would result in unlimited debate that would stall the vote so it couldn't be taken. Um, at one point, that filibuster was removed and there was a cloture process was added. And that term we heard a lot during the ACA uh, passage, it, it requires 60 votes to end a filibuster and then move on to the next step of a vote. Um, back then in 2017, the Senate again lowered the required votes to end the debate and to send the nomination to the floor to 51 votes. And so once it hits the floor, a simple majority of those present is required for the judicial nominee to be confirmed. So we're looking at 51 votes. If there's a tie, the vice president who presides over the Senate casts the deciding vote. So this is why this is relevant. Right now we have 53 to 47 in favor of the Republicans. That's the makeup in the Senate. Um, so that means that the Republicans can lose four senators in their vote. Currently you have Senators Murkowski of Alaska and Collins of Maine who have said they want the Republicans to wait until after the elections are held for the judicial vote to take place. We don't know if that means that they will necessarily vote against a candidate if, you know, if the candidate is uh, worthy of their vote. However, what we want to watch for is how quickly Senator McConnell tries to move this confirmation through the process, because um, if he has the votes needed for confirmation, it will go swiftly. The average number of days for a nomination process for the Supreme Court is 70 days. Um, there are a little over 40 days left now before the election, so it will be tough. But one thing is clear, both Republicans and Democrats are mobilized by this issue as well as they should be. It will have significant implications, not only for legal challenges to the election, but for other important issues as well. Right. And again, we're going to talk about the legal challenges to the election in just a moment. But when we're talking about other important issues, uh, we can look immediately to what cases are before the Supreme Court currently uh, particularly in the insurance and benefits world uh, with the ACA uh, scheduled for uh, oral arguments right after the elections in November. So there is going to be a change to the court's makeup um, already, right? We're at 4-4, uh, but this process could impact that and get another um, Supreme Court justice on the court. Either way, uh, what, what does that mean for this case uh, challenging the ACA? Well, you're right. Referring, you're referring to the case on appeal of California v. Texas, and in the lower courts, it was Texas v. the U.S., and it's the case that made it up to the Fifth Circuit in which the, that circuit affirmed the lower court's ruling that the individual mandate without a penalty was unconstitutional. The appellate court made that ruling and then pushed it back down to the trial court to determine what portions of the law should be struck down along with the, that finding. Um, however, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court has uh, agreed now to review the case and oral arguments are set for November after the elections. Um, the federal government's position has changed throughout the stages of this case, and so it will really require another podcast to delve into this in detail. I will say um, from reading various um, experts of, on the Supreme Court, they really don't believe that the court is, even in its current makeup, would uh, strike down the entire ACA. Um, or even large portions thereof, if that individual mandate continues um, being considered unconstitutional without that penalty. But for now, we'll just focus on the elections because, as I said, that would require an entire podcast to delve into in detail. Right. Okay. So let's get back to the elections and let's start with a main issue. What happens if the elections outcome is delayed? 
Well, unlike parliamentary democracies like Israel, where you have Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who, who has continued to serve until his replacement will be selected, the term of our president ends on a specific date, regardless of whether a successor is chosen. So the 20th Amendment to the Constitution says the terms of the president and vice president shall end at noon on January 20th. Uh, but then the end of that paragraph says that the terms of their successor shall then begin. So what happens if there's no successor? Uh, what, you know, does the president continue to serve as an interim office holder? The answer from a constitutional perspective is clearly no, because his or term end will end on at noon on January 20th. Okay, so that's super interesting. Uh, let's go back up and go over the process for the selection of the president if neither candidate reaches 270 electoral votes. That's obviously the threshold to be considered elected president. Okay, well, the Constitution's text requires that a group of electors, what we refer to as the Electoral College, choose the next president. So except for Maine and Nebraska, which both divide their electoral votes among districts, um, all the other states can conduct winner-take-all contests. So the winner of the popular votes in their state gets his or her slate of electors designated at their Electoral College representative. In most cases, a projected winner, as we know, from history is announced on election night in November, but the actual electoral college vote actually takes place in mid-December when the electors meet in their state. The Electoral Count Act dictates that the states must choose electors no more than 41 days after the election. This was established um, early on to try to settle the electoral college tallying before inauguration day. This year, that date is December 14th, and that is why um, you saw back in, this, in uh, Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court rushed to complete their decision on December 12, 2000. It was to stop the counting of the ballots um, within that time frame. So uh, we can certainly foresee a situation in which you will have a state that's still counting its votes that have been mailed in, or there's a legal challenge that prevents some state from submitting its electoral vote count. Uh, we could certainly imagine that the Electoral College will fail to give a presidential candidate a majority of the votes because of this flux in the states. The House will then select the next president and the Senate will select the next vice president. So this is called a contingent election. But what's different about a contingent election than you would think? You think, okay, the, the majority in the House right now is, is Democrat, so therefore the, the House will select mm -hmm. a Democrat. Um, but in a contingent election, the, the, the votes are cast differently. Each state delegation gets a single vote. So this means that California's House delegation that has currently 53 members, 46 of which are Democrat, they have the same power in the process as Wyoming, which has a single Republican member. Um, now, if you look at a contingent election, if it were held today, the Republicans actually have a slight advantage. So currently, Republicans control a majority of the House delegations in 26 states. Democrats control 22 states and two are split down the middle. Uh, but... I will say I was unable to clarify when a contingent election would be held. Would it be in December when the Electoral College is to meet and fails to um, put forth a president? Or would it be following uh, January 3rd when the new Congress is seated? Timing on this obviously could be very important. But right. if we look at contingent elections in general, they're very rare. There's only been three in the U.S. history since its founding. There were in the House, there was one in 1800 and in 1824, and then there was one in the Senate to choose the vice president back in 1836. So we're really talking about something that is historical. Very, yeah, extremely historical. We have not seen this in, 
uh, a very long time. Uh, but that is very interesting history. Thank you for outlining this. Um, I, I, we can assume legal challenges at the congressional level as well, right? What if the legal challenges prevent the House from selecting the presidency by noon on January 20th? Right. So we could have a situation where we don't have um, members in the House seated um, because of some legal challenges. And so then what happens? We we have already said that the Constitution says that the current president and vice presidents, uh, their positions will end at noon on January 20th if there is no decision um, by the Electoral College or the House as to who will take that office. You then on January 20th go to the Presidential Succession Act. And that states that the House Speaker will be next in line if neither the president nor the vice president can serve. So we could be potentially looking at uh, House Speaker Pelosi. Is that right? That's right. As the president of the United States. Um, You mentioned the Supreme Court rushed to complete uh, their review of Bush v. Gore uh, by that December 12th, 2000 deadline, again, to meet that 41-day deadline after the election. That involved a dispute about the electoral process, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, we all remember hanging chads from that time. Um, In 2000, neither Bush nor Gore could get to 270 electoral votes without Florida. And on the day after the elections, the Florida Division of Elections reported that Governor Bush had received a little less than 1,800 votes, more than Al Gore, which was equated to less than one half of a percent of votes that were tallied. And so it required an automatic recount. And when that recount was conducted, Bush was still winning the race, but by a smaller margin. And so what ensued was uh, lawsuits, uh, challenges by Gore. Um, And by the time the legal challenges rose up to the U.S. Supreme Court, the focus was on the ballots that the machines had failed to detect and then the process by which to do a hand recount in four counties. And what the Supreme Court ultimately determined was that the state's court's various new methods of a recount process violated the Equal Protection Clause of the, of the Constitution because it's really their legislature that should be determining the election process. Mm-hmm. So you can see how messy the legal challenges can get, but you can certainly imagine a real possibility that we will be living in that world following Election Day. Yes, we can see that for sure. So this is very helpful. This gives us all some idea of what some of the legal challenges Uh, could potentially be uh, in play here in the election. What other insights on that front can you provide, Suzanne? I have read some reports that close to 250 election-related court challenges have already been filed or litigated in 45 states during this current election cycle. Um, That that seems just extreme. There's been lawsuits that have been challenging new vote-by-mail laws, There's been challenges against uh, new laws that broadened access to voting. For example, in one state, they are allowing felons to vote. Um, You know, there are at least 19 states that allow the counting of votes that are received after Election Day. So you can imagine a situation where we have on election night one one outcome and then days later a different outcome. Um, which will inevitably end up in lawsuits. So lawsuits will ensue no matter what. Okay. So that is very interesting on the legal challenge front. Just going back to the Supreme Court again, really interestingly, what happens if there's a tie, if some of these legal challenges go up to the Supreme Court, similar to Bush v. Gore, and there's a tie in a Supreme Court ruling? How does that play out? 
So again, you know, there is a very likely possibility that we could end up in a tie in the Supreme Court with a 4-4 deadlock. And when that happens, the lower court's ruling stands. So this is what, what that outcome would mean. Right now, that would favor Republicans because Trump has been very successful installing his nominees on federal appellate courts as well as uh, lower courts around the country. As of September 10th, to give you an idea, the Senate had confirmed 208 judges, 53 of which were appellate judges. So the decision of the appellate court has a greater chance of being final in this instance. Um, In one article I read, it stated that a quick survey of some of the federal appeal courts in jurisdictions over swing states show that an ideological leaning towards GOP nominees. Uh, I mean, obviously, that doesn't necessarily dictate outcome, as we have seen uh, even with Chief Chief Justice Roberts Mm -hmm. um, on the Supreme Court. um, But it, it certainly gives at least some indication But, for example, the Federal Appeals Court and the Eighth Circuit, which has jurisdiction over Minnesota, has 10 Republican appointees and only one Democratic appointee. Um, But, you know, Biden has a significant lead over Trump in Minnesota, so that may not be an issue in that state. If we look at Wisconsin, the Seventh Circuit has jurisdiction over that state. And in the Seventh Circuit, it leans 9-2 in favor of Republicans. Um, I will say there are some states like Michigan and Arizona, though, that sit in circuits in which the Democrat nominees outnumber the Republicans. So be very watchful of what occurs at the appellate level, because that may be the deciding factor in this election. What will really be interesting is if we have um, appellate courts that differ or conflict, and then it reaches the Supreme Court and there's a tie and it goes back down to the appellate level and there's a conflict in outcomes. Wow. So, so many things to keep an eye on, so many potential outcomes here. Uh, But this is great to uh, get an understanding of how the process plays out, first of all, for our Supreme Court nominee, uh, how that may impact the decision under the ACA, and then some things to watch very closely here in the election process, uh, including a potential lawsuit challenge to the actual outcome. So we'll use a later podcast to delve into health reform under a Biden administration and other issues that impacts uh, employers. But thank you so much, Suzanne, for walking through this. Indeed, it'll be fun to watch. Yes, thank you for joining us today. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the latest episode in our new Washington Update 2020 election mini-series. We will keep you informed and up-to-date on the candidates and their platforms as we get closer to the presidential election. 